0: climate crisis is the biggest problem facing the planet. So what role does physics have in making the future better for the next generation? Hello, I'm Jeba Milne and welcome to this, the third series of the Looking Glass podcast from the Institute of Physics. In our last series, we asked what a green economy might look like and how physics could be a part of it. In this new series, I'm going to be looking at the more immediate solutions that physics and physicists can offer, and reflecting on what the IOP's role is in reducing the problems. In this first episode, we'll be delving into the questions around climate policy, activism and necessary change. I'm really pleased to be joined by two guests who are doing brilliant work in this area. Paul Hardacre is the IOP's outgoing chief executive, and as a climate scientist, attended the early COPs 30 years ago. Climate activist Fatima Ibrahim is the director of Green New Deal UK. Between us, we'll be asking where physics sits in the campaigning landscape for making the necessary changes in dealing with the climate crisis. We'll be exploring the changing face of climate activism and how it intersects with the role of the IOP and other scientific organisations, and asking where that all-important future action will originate from. It might feel a little odd to be using COP26 as a starting point for this conversation when it happened six months ago, but at this stage it's interesting that the resolutions reached and argued over have all but fallen out of the public conversation. With that in mind, I started by asking Paul about the success of the most recent summit and whether that success is measured in relation to the previous iterations he's attended.
1: People may know that um, in the early 1990s, the, a number of countries got together under the UN to form this convention, the, the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. And with all UN conventions, you have a conference of the parties, what we call the COP, every year, uh, where those countries come together and make decisions about how you achieve the ambitions that set out in the convention. So they're really important for that reason, is that they are decision-making bodies and they bring governments together to decide things in in binding ways. So they are really important events. Um, There are some significant ones along the way, which people might remember. I mean, the Kyoto Protocol, for example, came out of discussions of one of the early COPs. Uh, More recently, the Paris Accord and the agreements that came out of COP 21, sort of set the landscape for the discussions that we've been having over the past five years. A lot of people were hoping that from this COP26 that we would come away with some agreements about whether uh, we could achieve a, a stabilization of global temperatures at 1.5 degrees, certainly by 2050, and and to make some significant progress by 2030. So to go back to your question, was it was it a success? Well, measured against that, no, we didn't come away with that. Um, but we did make some significant progress, I think. We got quite a fraction of the way there. We got a lot of sectors who uh, haven't been included or thought much about in earlier agreements, uh, now included in those, like aviation. Uh, we're nearly there on getting together $100 billion of funding to support uh, less developed economies to, to meet some of these targets. Uh, and we got some new commitments to the pathways. So we didn't get what we'd hoped, what many people had hoped, but we certainly got some uh, some progress from last time. But I, I think what felt different for me I, was that for the first time we got uh, the political frameworks, the legal frameworks, the financial frameworks, and and with some sort of economic value around that, come together with the science. And I I think that is a bit of a game changer.
0: So, Fatima, what about from sort of the public perspectives because we're talking a lot about the, the change in political conversation, the change of type of things that we're discussing. But, you know, of, even in the last two years, the shift in public perception and public conversation around climate change has, or, or you know, it's now climate crisis. There is one uh, example of, of that change in discussion. I wonder if you could reflect a little bit on on that and how you see that as perhaps a a, a power in, in playing in these COP discussions and more broadly in climate change?
2: Yes. So we're lucky in this country for one reason. I mean, mean, there's lots of reasons why we're lucky. But in in relation to this, we're lucky because for a while now we've had, um, the public has been unanimous in their belief around climate change and to some extent climate science. So we're having a less polarizing debate on does climate change exist? Do we believe scientists that they are still having those debates in some countries in the world? But what has shifted, and we particularly shifted since 2019, where we saw you know, this massive rise in public mobilisation, whether it was the youth climate strikers or ext- Extinction Rebellion and have these big marches, is that we've moved from just accepting climate change as is a fact to actually debating and engaging in what needs to be done to mitigate against climate change. So the government can't just come out and say, We believe in climate change and we should do something about it. We're actually much more attuned to the sorts of things that need to be done. So when the government came up with its 10-point plan um, during the pandemic on how to deal with the climate crisis, I think both NGOs, but also just the average public could see that a government who comes out with a plan but doesn't put money to match that plan wasn't really serious about climate change. And so we've moved to a more nuanced debate about climate delaying, and we're not having so much a conversation about climate denial. And so we now have political leaders who are delaying by not actually doing the real work necessary to deal with the problem, but have become much better public communicators. They are a generation of political leaders who, to some extent, believe in climate change. They know the right words. They know what the solutions are. They can give you know huge statements and speeches like Boris Johnson did at Glasgow about the breadth of the problem and the things that need to be done. But at the same time, you have a public that's much more attuned to the real solutions and can sort of um
0: cold BS on what uh, political leaders are saying. Paul, I'd love to bring you in here then to hear a little bit about how and you know where the IOP slots into this. Um you know thinking about this shift in political conversation as well as public uh perception What's been the sort of shift or the altering in terms of the way a scientific institution that the IOP is has communicated and taken part um, in discussions and messaging around this issue?
1: As Fatima said, it's been really interesting to watch the change in debate. When I first involved in this, there was a somewhat unusually, I suppose, with these things, there was a really strong, certainly parochial in the UK, there was a really strong policy push. But nothing really coming from that public messaging. So, I think in the early days, with organizations like the Institute of Physics, the Royal Meteorological Society, who has the sector lead in this, it was all about defending the science. So, a lot of the communications were about defending the science, defending the evidence. And as Fatima said, now we're in a much more interesting debate about uh, where there's a public pull and and that's taken over the policy push and and we're in a much more interesting debate about solutions and the breadth of those solutions and the inclusive nature of those things you know how do we move to a green economy in an inclusive way where uh, different countries different groups within those and communities within those countries can all equally benefit from the development of that economy and what that means for society and and that's a much more interesting territory to be in and more of our communications are now focused around things like that you know what what do we need in an energy mix how do we move to a green economy in a sustainable and inclusive way.
0: Let's talk a little bit about activism then and um, obviously across this time period that we're talking you know 1994 till now um, activist groups have evolved and also Lots of new ones have been created. You know, groups like Greenpeace um, has sort of borderline become institutionalized themselves, and then you've got new players like Extinction Rebellion that become the sort of radical face um, of the of this activism uh, side. How inevitable is this kind of shift in the way that activism is done, um, Fatima? I would love to hear a little bit um, of your reflections on on how activism has changed and, and what its sort of current state is.
2: I mean, we've had you know, a renaissance in terms of uh, public mobilisation and activism. And you know, I look fondly back to the pre-pandemic days of 2019, Uh where we had, you know, amazing mobilizations that were breaking through. They weren't just, you know, um, a few thousand people marching. These were like one after the other mobilizations that were breaking through globally. Um, if, If you think back that, you know, one young woman's decision to, you know, sit on Fridays outside of the Swedish parliament grew into this massive global movement that then had political leaders scrambling to make commitments. Just in that year alone, Theresa May, you know, brought forward net zero legislation. The parliament declared a climate emergency. We've had the first UK citizens, citizens' assembly on climate change. And so that was in the space of a few short months because of the amount of pressure political leaders were facing and were feeling from a new generation uh, that that essentially see their, their futures at stake. Um, I think since the pandemic, some of the changes that we've seen and, you know, Green New Deal UK... Last summer launched Green New Deal Rising, which is our youth movement for a Green New Deal. And some of the ways we've learned from those movements that had so much success in 2019 is to think about how we are advocating for solutions. And so not just calling an emergency without pointing to um a vision of the future people are willing to fight for Um, having a political strategy um, and so like having a stake in that political strategy and recognizing that we can't just be shouting at political leaders you know, time is running out. And so if our leaders are not responding to us, we need to have strategies to change our leaders and have new generation of leaders um, who are willing to represent um, those who are, you know, concerned about the future and have new ways and new solutions. Um, And so I feel very hopeful about where we're at in terms of public mobilization. The other change, I wrote this piece in 2019, where I went to one of the first youth strikes and I said it's the first time that I'd gone to a a mobilisation on climate change, despite at that point having been involved for a very long time and organised my own marches, but that I saw myself reflected in the march. And so in terms of diversity, we're reaching entirely new communities. Um, And it's because we have stopped talking about climate change as an environmental issue and as a social issue. And by doing that, we've stopped um, forcing people to have being to prioritize their problems and say actually this is the thing you should care about you know despite the fact that you are struggling to pay your rent or despite the fact that you're facing other inequalities this climate issue is the most important thing but by reframing it and talking about climate change as a symptom of A system that's failing us in lots of different ways and affecting communities differently, and I think that's another way that um, movements have changed to make sure that we're building a much more inclusive and diverse movement.
0: It's a really interesting point you make about, um, you know, as you say, you're bringing in all these different social pressures, various different social groups, different messaging that um, is important to uh, more people, shall we say, at least on the face of it. Um, But I'm curious as to where that does bring in this idea of. Of scientific activism or scientists in activism. And Paul would love to hear a little bit about it from your perspective. Um, you know, some people would say that um, you know, science is not a space for activism. Science should be um, separate, should be apolitical. Um, you shouldn't have activists in science and you shouldn't have scientists in in activism. Um, and, and there's sort of a lot of risks of the two. But I wonder from your perspective, um, you know, where you sit um in terms of this idea of the role of scientists in, in activism.
1: Yeah, it's an interesting question, isn't it? That comes up quite often in these discussions. I, I mean, I, I would say uh, up front that you know you just can't have a healthy democracy without activism. It has to be a fundamental part of of uh, of how we our democracies work, and uh, and you can't you know activism needs the scientific evidence on which to to act and call call people to action about. So they they you know they fit well together. Um, uh, scientists are people too they have a frame of reference they have a view about the world Um, you know it's certainly true that um, I came into atmospheric physics meteorology weather and climate because it's something that I cared about it had impacts on people's lives and that was important to me as choosing to go into that when I was doing active research so you know we all come from a frame of reference I think what's key is that uh it's not helpful when the two blend together i think what what's what is absolutely the case and i've seen it over the past 20 30 years is activism has really strengthened the quality of the science and the evidence base um, because it calls on the scientific evidence to uh, to tighten its its value its its uh, um the information content within it reduce the uncertainty and and it it drives and helps to drive forward some focus but i think you have to keep the two a little bit separate don't you they are two very different things you know the science is fundamentally it's about it's about a search for knowledge the truth that moves society forward uh, so there is context to it um and and it's about bringing together that evidence and and being clear about where the uncertainty sits um i think where you get into trouble is where Maybe there's a blurring between um, that search for evidence and the uh, the action that you might want to take, and and the uncertainty that sits around the evidence and how that's portrayed and used in in political debate and discussion. But I, be, I mean, I think fundamentally, uh, science and the learned societies that work in those sectors can be a really important bridge between uh, the activists community, the wider public, uh, some of that. A policy establishment who are going to make the the change so you you know holding those together and at the heart of all that is the evidence base
0: i suppose for me there seems like sort of two sides to this um when we talk about science and, and activism there's the sort of activism for science i.e sort of lobbying that science is important and this idea that science is a, is a search for truth and also you know frankly that the sort of you know the message that science is not um you know fallible it's 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 fallible at times and that you know there's issues there but we still have to trust it all that that kind of sort of science activism and then there's the activism around specific things like climate change which of course um, certain areas of science are going to link into and I wondered from the perspective of the IOP being a scientific institution which obviously will spend some of its time and resources making sure it does that science activism side i.e. science is a search for truth and it's important we should pay attention to it. What does, what, what where does it leave the IOP when we talk about activism to do with issues such as things like climate change?
1: So organisations like IOP, they're, they're not just about the scientific evidence, they're also about creating a momentum of action around that evidence as well. So there is a campaigning and activism element to all of these professional bodies as well, which we shouldn't forget. Uh, and, you know, some of us have been around for a long time as societies, so, you know, we. Fundamentally, they probably are uh, as, as establishment as you get, but establishment doesn't mean you play a marginal role in things. I think the power of professional bodies and learner societies is you can you have a strong power to convene to convene groups to to bring a, to embed sustainable change, to be a, a trusted voice in the in the debate and you, and you lose that at your peril and I think also you know, to, to gal, as, as Fatima was saying to galvanize people and to give momentum to to debate um, so I, they do play an important role in the ecosystem i think
0: fatima from your perspective i'd love to hear um you know where you're coming from around this question of um science scientists activism and climate change you know being um in an organization like green new deal uk you know what is it you're kind of looking for or hoping for when it comes to the role of scientists and their institutions
2: I'll admit I'm one of those activists like very early on decided to not be literate in the science because I just felt like the science is clear. The scientific community is 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 agreed. And therefore, what I don't want to do is get into the rabbit hole of explaining the science and actually operate off a basis of The science is clear um but i think the challenge comes and paul alluded to this is around how we communicate the science to strengthen our campaigning and so one clear example of that is when um when the the 10 years left report came out that's not what it's called but that's how it was memed
0: right you mean the ipcc report
2: yes uh and and a lot has been said about um you know, how that 2018 report um, has been communicated around and some of the pitfalls the campaigning community has sort of opened for itself by not looking at sort of the nuances and the caveats, you know, the the science isn't able to say 100%. This is how much we've got, the time that we've got left. But for campaigning, it's useful. It's useful to kind of set that kind of alarm of, hey, we can't wait till 2050, We need to make these changes in 10 years. But on the flip side, what we've done is if the politics and the move, like campaigning doesn't move as quickly as that, we get to 2030 and people turn around in distrust and say, hey, we're at 2030. You said we've got 10 years left. Well, we're still here. (laughs) We're still living and breathing. And so I think campaigners could learn a lot from being better to communicate the science. But also I think scientists having a platform to communicate the science the way that they see fit. I quite often, you know, I was thinking recently about the film that came out over the Christmas Don't Look Up, which everyone I'm sure has seen now. And it's, it's it's a movie about scientists and it's a movement about scientists calling the alarm about the end of the world. And if you look at Leonardo DiCaprio's character, you know, in one way you might think he was campaigning, but actually what he was doing was his job. They found the evidence and they didn't sit in a room and just sit with that evidence. They actually went there based on their convictions to make sure people could hear the evidence and that there is action um, uh, coming as a consequence to the evidence that they found that a meteor meteor was hitting the planet. And so there is a room for scientists to be doing that, you know, not necessarily, you know, being in cahoots with campaigners, but just speaking out of the convictions of the facts. That they have found and I think one of the things that we need to be aware of is we're currently in a world that is splitting around a cultural divide and where people are building their own universes and so that first began with their own universes of like choosing to listen to particular media outlets, but that's now starting to include experts. What health practitioners do they listen to? What scientists do they listen to? What And what we need to be super aware of is we don't want climate scientists to be divided into those split cultures what we need climate scientists to be is like an untouchable force of truth and that you can't have your own version of that truth that the climate crisis is real that this is the direction we need to take and so i think campaigner it's healthy for campaigners to have this slight separation from climate scientists so that we can uh, protect them from those who want to say um that climate scientists are partisan Or that they only belong to one side of the political divide. Because the truth is, and this is I think the most poignant part of the Don't Look Up film, is when Leonardo DiCaprio's character screaming, being like... This isn't about political sides. I like This isn't about left or right. This is about the facts. I'm telling you the world is going to end. And I think that's the space we need to keep scientists about, that they're not being pulled into those divides, that they're just speaking from an objective truth.
0: This idea of simplification of scientific truths um, and, and the importance of that in terms of mobilisation, but of course the risks um, of that being misconstrued or, or weaponized by um, certain groups of people or, or people opposing these ideas. Um, Paul, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about this um, simplification and those risks.
1: Well, we have to simplify some of the the messaging because the science is quite complicated. And and one of the most common ways that people hear about that, of course, is a a temperature target that we should try and stabilise. But actually, if you think about it, it's, it's rather odd, isn't it, to think of a single temperature for the whole globe? Because really, when we're talking about climate change, we're talking about something that has very local and very regional impact, Uh, and the temperature changes that we will see across the different parts of the world can be really quite different. And actually, um, probably in some areas, more importantly, it's not temperature. We're using that as a surrogate for things like uh, ecosystem impact, the water cycle, uh, things that will affect uh, health uh, and biodiversity. So it, it it is a shorthand that uh, we can measure it. So it's something we can get a handle on, which is, I guess, why it's it's used a lot. And and but of course, when we're trying to set ourselves targets for countries to reduce their emissions, we have to work back from the temperature to an emissions scenario, and there is some assumptions and, and modeling we make there that the relationship or the sensitivity of our climate to the greenhouse gases we put in it and the temperature response that we see. So we work back from the temperature to a a parts per million concentration of greenhouse gases, and then we ask countries to reduce those parts per million. So it is a challenge when we have to simplify the message to try and get across something that is rather complex in terms of uh, the impact that it's having and also how we structure our responses to, um, to the challenges.
0: Obviously trust is a, a big part here for a lot of the reasons that Fatima has outlined with, you know, various different, as you say, cultural divides. Um, but also from a perspective of um, you know, not everybody coming from the same perspective, um, when it whether it's amount of scientific knowledge, whether it's um different communities and different perceptions towards what science is in the first place, um, you know, having very various level of trust, you know, I'm thinking about health systems, for example, um, various different types of communities have different levels of trust for real reasons, right? Right. Um, so I wonder, from your perspective, how you think about communication um, of of truth, of facts um, that maintains trust.
1: It's really key, isn't it? Because what's the point in doing it if we can't get the evidence across to those who need it? Um, and one of, one of the things and going back to when I was an early career scientist, it was one of the things that struck me about how much the view of communicating science has changed. I was really discouraged in those days. You know, you, you just didn't engage with the media. It wasn't the thing you did. You concentrated on your research. Other people did that. Now it, it's almost a fundamental part of the training of our early career scientists is that you 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 learn how to communicate what you do, and uh, and particularly working with the media, and that and that we're embedding that. And I I, do, I think that's really important. You know, the vast majority of science in this country and many other countries is funded by public money and it's important that you communicate what you do to the public and uh and be clear about its relevance its importance um i think one of the one of the fundamental challenges science has always had is this this point that fatima touched on about uncertainty i think you as a scientist uncertainty is is real knowledge because it helps you understand what you don't know where to focus your energy how to make the biggest gains in in knowledge but but to many people in that in in the public uncertainty means you don't know which is certainly not true and so that i think there's been this struggle for many years about how you how you get across uncertainty in a way that doesn't suggest that you know, you, you know less than you do and that you haven't got enough information to make informed decisions you know, and we can't the science is complex as fatima saying you you can't turn every member of the public into a climate scientist so you have to find ways of getting the message across uh, and getting the evidence base across without compromising the evidence and being truthful to to the uncertainties that sit within it and I, and I and that means trusting our scientists that does mean trusting our scientists that uh, they are going to on occasion have to apply judgment to things uh, when they're helping decision makers across that bridge of uncertainty. And we've we've seen that quite a bit in the discussions recently around COVID and the vaccination programs. It's no different in the climate space.
0: I suppose there's also the risk of if you say something like, you know, each country has to reduce by X amount. There are ways and means of getting around that. We actually explored this in the previous uh, season around um, each country's emissions and how some countries are kind of um, pushing various things that they do to other countries um, and they're absorbing essentially the same stuff but it's going in a different calculation and not making any difference but one country looks better than another and gets to tick the box of hitting a target and again it's that simplification or these sort of pseudo targets that um that can then really muddy the waters there fatima i'd love to bring you in again on this this concept of simplification
2: yeah the the issue of simplification i mean in the run-up to paris um you know, a bit of a backstory, actually, this is behind the scenes uh, in the years leading up to the Paris Agreement. A few campaign groups came together to try and overcome this temperature degree problem. That was not a good messaging tool. It didn't mean anything to anyone. And it wasn't something that we were able to kind of like, mobilize people around to be like, the thing that we need to do is to save 1.5 degrees. But what does 1.5 degrees mean? So What we wanted was something in the Paris Agreement that was a long-term goal that spoke to what needed to be done. And so from a public messaging perspective, we're like, I mean, that's 100% renewables. The thing that needs, the thing that gets us to 1.5 is changing how we power um, everything. And the way we do that is by moving to renewables. In the text, that came down to conversations about zero, um, which then in turn turned to net zero. And so we didn't win because... The net in net zero gives a huge sort of opening to governments and companies to offset. But that was kind of the backstory to how we got net zero. And the text came from this hope of trying to get something tangible in the text that spoke to what needed to be done as opposed to, where like a, a temperature or a day, and so I think there's been some efforts by campaigners to try and um, turn the science into something that's actionable. It hasn't always necessarily been successful, but I'm with Paul there that I think um, the simplification I think is is both. Necessary, but on the road to simplification, there are so many pitfalls, and I think time and time again we've probably failed in that process of simplification by um, by then advocating accidentally for things that actually don't work for us in the long term. And so now we're constantly fighting the meme of net zero (laughs) and trying to communicate why, you know, net zero isn't ambitious enough. And net zero is the reason why our government is able to announce new oil fields is because they're able to hide behind technology that actually just doesn't exist yet in the hope that somehow before 2050, they can get it up and running and they can still Keep pumping um, oil out of the ground, and this this
0: technology will be able to to save us. I think sometimes what's missing in this discussion around. Um you know, communication of science. Um, We talk a lot about communication, we talk a lot about simplification. Maybe it's not about simplifying, but rather translating or trying to work out what it is that you're trying to say, right? And I think that's, you know, it sounds like 101 in media and advertising land, which is where I come from, but it's not necessarily a 101 when you're a scientist and you have complicated stuff that you want to get out you think well I'll just make it simple so that people can understand exactly what I think and it's like well that's never going to happen because they're not going to have your background they've not done the research you have so instead it's going what is it that we actually want people to think what do we want them to say what do we want them to be armed with in terms of messaging Um, and so sometimes I think it's that tendency to go this is complex let's make it simple as opposed to what you're saying there Fatima of going this is complex but what is it we actually are trying to say what is it we want people to do what people what do we want people to get from this and that's much more a process of translation more so than simplification.
1: Well I I absolutely agree I I guess the additional point that I would make is that uh, we're very lucky in this country to have uh, a very strong science community of science journalists and, and bodies like the Science Media Centre who uh, are, are trying to help with the translation of that message in just the way that Gemma talked about. So I, I think we are fortunate uh, in, in the UK that we we have such a strong community of people. And we have an in, this increasing commitment to train our early career scientists to to engage more with the media and to do that together and to think of it as a partnership, really, about getting the the translation of the message across in a way that you know every, I mean everyone wants to be true to the message and true to the fact and we, we need to work together towards that I think.
2: the thing that I would add is you know the climate crisis isn't going anywhere and this is something you know in one way or another we are going to be fighting forever and future generations will be fighting and finding new ways to live sustainably and adapt to the world as it is. And so I think I just come back to education and like thinking about our education system and how do we attract more young people to go into the sciences? How do we attract more diverse people? And how do we create a more literate um demographic and uh get young people inspired around climate change get people inspired around the solutions and be able to come up with new solutions and so i think we can quite often to ju- just communicate to the public as it is and not think about future generations when really you know 30 years from now when we'll still be thinking about how do we um tackle issues that probably will be you know different from they are now but actually not that Different. It's still going to be the basic problems that we've had time memoriam, which is like, how do we live with a planet? How do we feed ourselves? How do we provide energy and power in a way that provides a future for all of us fairly and equitably? Um, it's a worthwhile investment to invest in young people right now and put them in the best place possible place to be able to um, enter the world and be able to understand it and to be able to engage with it um, both from an intellectual level but also a tangible you know way of being able to come up with solutions and
0: um, and be involved in the conversation. This um this point around um you said Fatima the message had been memed you know this idea of kind of simplifying down the science into this twelve year ten year whatever goal um and that opening up um I guess opportunity for those that want to change that message or for it to come across in a particular way to very easily. Pick it apart. And I think this is also um, sort of a a broader question that's talked about in science communication generally. And you see this with almost any, you know, documentary or whatever that comes out. I'm thinking C Spiracy that came out recently, where the initial reaction was, oh my goodness, this is crazy. And then you get a few scientists going, well, hang on a second, this wasn't totally true. And then you get whole people saying, oh, this documentary is rubbish because it told lies. And it's like, no, stop. There's nuance here. And I think this is something that is difficult. I mean, I think about this from a media perspective. There's the role of trying to explain what science is. And Paul, you said this about this point of uncertainty, meaning something different almost to the layman and to a scientist. Um, but then there's also the communication of um, th- this the actual science that you're doing. So there's sort of two layers of message that you have to do that some people would argue is what makes this so difficult you've got science education and then you've got the, the actual science messaging um so I wondered I'd love to hear from both of you what sort of role do you think the media should play in building confidence in science I mean even me saying that I'm thinking that's not the media's role but you know what do you think is the way that we should be um talking about things what's going right what's going wrong in terms of um, how we're getting these messages out Fatima let's start with you
2: yeah, I mean, the, the media's role, I mean, at least for me, and particularly um, public broadcasters, is to to be able to inf- create an informed public and to create informed voters and citizens. And so I think that if I'm sitting in a newsroom and I'm looking at the slate and I'm the editor, I mean... A good faith editor would be doing that, to be like, what are the news stories and what are the questions we need to be asking that leave the viewer a better citizen able to make better decisions about the votes and um, the the votes they take, how they live their lives. And And I think we are not there right now. Um, we're very far from that. And uh, the right questions are not being asked. In some instances, instances, climate change is still being given the two-sided uh, treatment where you have, you know, quite often I'm doing interviews and I'm up against someone who doesn't believe in climate change. And I'm like, this is 2022. You are not, I mean, this makeup of a panel does not reflect where the public's at it's not like the public is 50-50 if the public's 50-50 have two-sided debate but when the when the public is 70-30 or 80-20 where is there a room for a two-sided debate on whether climate change exists or should we be asking much more detailed questions about um about the solutions and unpicking the solutions and so i think that's the role of the media um In doing that, I think, again, we're in the age of 2020. We have lots of alternative media. Public is able to directly access spokespeople. So like this podcast, for example, people can hear directly from Paul. They don't need to go through other mediums. And so I think there's benefits in that and that people are able to seek out and hear from different voices without necessarily having to rely on the same old traditional media outlets. Having said that, that obviously comes with its own risks, as we've seen with the COVID-19 pandemic and what's been happening in the last couple of weeks. Um, The one thing I would say is the biggest challenge that we have, and I would love to hear how we overcome this and Paul's thoughts on it, is the bad guys always have a simpler message. The good guys always have the nuanced message of like, this is not certain and like there's lots of different ways we could do this and these are the caveats and when you're in the public forum and when you're dealing with politics you deal in binaries and you deal with exaggerations and (laughs) and so I think that's the challenge is that people who don't believe in the climate science or people who don't want us to do something can just simply say that. Whereas we're trying to build public trust, we're trying to be honest, but we're also trying to mobilise people quickly. And that's a very complicated story. And the minute that you try and bring a nuance to your complicated story, you lose people. And I think that's where science and campaigning have sort of struggled to come
0: together. I would definitely agree with that, Fatima. I think um, the the sort of the worry around the weaponization of your message is is very, um, very... It's something I think a lot about. You know, I've I've covered science fraud stories, uh, for example, in the past, and every time I think about it or write it or put it out. I worry that, you know, that's gonna contribute to this idea of, oh, you know, we shouldn't trust science because fraud happens and it's all bad. Um, but of course, you know, you also want science to be as good as possible. And that means unearthing the bad actors, the, the bad apples or the the systemic issues that that arises um, and that, that allows this sort of thing to happen. And um, Paul, we'd love to hear your comments on on this um, issue that that Fatima raised around messaging, simplicity and and um you know, how we kind of, you said the good guys and the bad guys, but how we get the messages that we that we think are the most informed, the most informed, getting them out to the public in the best way possible.
1: And it it is a challenge, isn't it? And you see it a lot, particularly with social media, uh, that it it can tend to polarise people and and send people into groups of of, of like-minded thinking, which is unhealthy, and how, I, I, I'm not sure anyone's really cracked the problem about how you, how do you maintain and be a trusted voice in that space. Um, but I, I'm, as Fatima said, I, I used to I used to get really frustrated with this approach that the media had about having to have the balance of the two sides all the time, even though the scientific weight was 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 not as uh, uh, as in the same balance. And, and thankfully, we see less of that. But I guess in all media, there's an editorial direction and shape that, and that's understandable. Um I, I think it's the responsibility of all of us in, in organisations like the IOP, where we think that that editorial message isn't doing justice to the science and the evidence, that we challenge it. And we bring challenge to those things in anywhere where we see Uh, the evidence being misused or or misappropriated that we challenge it. I think uh, the other thing that I've thought a lot about since I read uh, uh, um, Mike Hume, who uh, was very active in the climate space for many years, a founding director of the Tyndall Centre. Mike wrote a book about why do we disagree about climate change? And it talks just about the fact that people come to this problem from many frames of reference you know you might come at it as a from an economic frame or a social justice frame or a technology frame but what's always puzzled me is why the medias tend to focus on one dimension of that debate uh, for me the interesting bit is when the scientists come together with the social scientists come together with the activists the policy makers and we have collective discussion about these issues and i think the same is true in the media where we we get bigger traction if we don't just focus all of our, all of our communications in one of those frames that we, we, we touch all of those in different ways. And I think the other thing is that we bring it to life a bit more. I mean, it, it is can be quite dry and difficult to engage with for people. So it's, it's really important to bring it to life. And, you know, <laughs> there is a David Attenborough effect in all of this, isn't it? If you, you know, in the way we put together our communications, whether it's in the TV or through the media, if we can find ways that really bring it to in life and en- and engage people, I think that's that's a much better approach. And I, And I guess finally I'd say you need a positive call to action in there, don't you? You can't just go, you know, this is a real problem, it's all doom and gloom. You know, people need to hear what you can do about it to bring about change. And I think that's a really important part of the... The communication of the message, which we're seeing more about these days than than we used to.
2: I think across the board, what we're failing at doing, though, and I have failed this as a climate communicator and only started to recognise this failure is we spend a lot of time talking about what's wrong. And we don't spend much time describing or pointing to what we need to do more of or what solutions could look like or what the future even looks like. I realized 10 years in that I had never spent more than a minute probably thinking about what a good future could look like. And I'm like, how am I inspiring people to take action and to get up every day to be activists or to be engaged in the conversation If I'm not giving them something to hope for, if I'm not painting a future that they see themselves in and that they're willing to fight for. And so no matter what means or mediums are communicating to people about, I think there's such a huge opening for us to be able to, you know, point towards a better future. What does it look, tangibly look like? But also, you know, more often than not, I think, you know, there's hardly ever new ideas. Um, Most things already exist somewhere on earth or they're happening in communities and so it's being able to pull out those stories of um, different energy forms or different way communities run or how we could have better access to uh, to land or different ways of growing our food and being able to bring them into the public discourse and you know put real faces and uh, to these to these solutions and get people excited about the future I think that's what we could be doing uh, better of across all means but I think When it comes to different ways of communicating, we're well on our way, whether it's the art form, whether like every day I see new ways that people are uh, thinking about communicating climate change, whether it's a play or um, it's a song. Or we had an organizer recently send us a really beautiful song that she wrote inspired on, inspired by the activism that she uh, has undertaken around COP. And so I think people are out there being creative. We just need to inspire them about the future.
0: I think that's a really important point about um, painting these these visions, right? Because not only is it um, giving this idea of hope or positivity, but it's also showing how doable things are, right? And I always remember when Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez put out a little video a couple of years ago about Green New Deal. And I remember thinking, God, I, th- nobody's done this before where they've just shown... Actually, how simple this idea really is and how, you know, actually, why on earth would we not want that? Um, and I thought it was a very clever. We're way. currently
2: producing a UK version. So, Amazing. Um, Great. So closer to home, people can maybe just uh, see what future would look like in the UK under a Green New Deal. Amazing.
0: Paul, I want to I bring you in um, to maybe start rounding off this, this discussion, obviously bring it back to the IOP here. We've been talking a lot about the role of scientists as activists or the role of activism within science and, and sort of how they interlink and how they're separate. And of course, it's really important, the sentiment, you know, you said earlier, uh, scientists are people too. But what's the sort of reality of you know, institutions like the IOP actually coming out and, and saying things, right? I mean, these sorts of um, organisations have policies, you have to, you know, write a press release, you have to issue a line on things. It's not always as simple as a representative from the IOP, you know, tweeting something, right? Um, it feels a little bit at odds with with some of what we're talking about. I wonder if you could dive into that a little bit more for us.
1: Yeah, and we, we have some very... Uh immediate experience of that with COP26, because uh, around that time, we put together a statement with about 12 or so of the the largest national physical societies in the world, because, you know, this is a very international challenge. And a collective voice and and thought on this was something we felt that was important. So we brought together those organisations that between us probably represent uh, several million scientists as, as members to do that and you know th- those are not easy things to do when you're creating collective opinion whether that's within a UK and Ireland community or, or broadly across international communities um, because we are we are member bodies we're there to try and reflect the the, the thoughts and, and views of the membership so sometimes it does take time probably to everyone's frustration to bring those thoughts together but the the value of doing that I think is perhaps two or threefold. The first is that you you spend time debating the issues and, and it's richer for it because you get some stronger thought out of the process um, than you might do if you, if you have to do this with a bit more pace, perhaps. The second is that you get something that sticks more and is a bit more sustainable and a bit more reflective of the collective view. So it carries a bit more weight, certainly with the policy makers, I would say. and And I think, you know, Doing this uh, internationally shows that um, you know that this isn't a, a thing that's just simply in the bounds of a, of a country. This is a collective view from across a, a global community. We're all working on the same challenges, uh, and broadening that out, as I mentioned earlier, to beyond the science to those who are thinking about problems, whether that's in engineering or in the social sciences, and joining up this discussion. I think. Uh, Takes us to a point where we can be more positive about the actions that we want people to take, and then finally, I think it's important in any of these things that you do that you that it's not just a bland statement. Uh, you know, it needs a call to action, whether whether that's for policymakers or the public or even your own scientific community. These things have to have a a call to action to be meaningful.
0: This um this point around what Fatima saying around. What is it that we have to do to ensure that we are um doing what's right by the role that we are in? Obviously, I'm thinking about it from a media perspective. Fatima's thinking about it from an activist perspective, and from your perspective, both as a scientist and as a representative of the institution, like the IOP. You know, what's the sort of future um of of the institute in in this space?
1: As you both said, it's important to reinforce that message, isn't it? There is a there is a route out of the challenges that we've got. It's not easy. Uh, it's interesting, I think going back to, you mentioned at the beginning, the ozone hole and going back to the Montreal Protocol. We had a quick fix for that because there was a technology swap. And and I think, uh, you know, this is very different, but it caught a lot of people out in the early days. I think having rather relatively quickly got to a solution with the ozone problem, I think in the early days people thought, well, it will be the same for the climate. The evidence is compelling. We'd, you know, it'll go the same way, and it it hasn't. But it, it, it is it, because it is more complicated and there are tougher things around the way we use energy as a society and our, our, our approach to that, which is why it's really important that the work of, of that people like Fatima are doing in, in, in looking at these futures and what they could be and how we get the pathways towards that is really important because the, there are compelling ways out of this where we end up with a, a, a societal framework that is richer, not just economically, but in a whole host of ways for it. And and I, I guess the role of organisations like the IOP is to continue reminding people of the evidence, uh, continue reminding people of the uh, that there are routes through this, um, putting up uh, the challenges that we still have. We've still got lots of interesting conversations about what's in our energy mix going forward. You know, how is gas going to be part of that? Is nuclear a part of that solution as well. Really interesting science priorities on local generation and storage of energy, for example. So I just think it's keeping the debate moving forward, keeping it present in the minds of the public and the policymakers, and continuing to encourage our scientists to engage with that debate uh, uh, as they move the evidence forward.
0: Amazing. Paul, Fatima, this has been um, a brilliant discussion. I hope you agree with me. I think we've touched on lots of different things, but also um, both of you giving some real clear answers on things that we can all do right, not just uh, the general public but us as scientists, representative of the media um, and activists as well and what it means to continue this conversation into 2022 um, and not sticking back in its 1994 original COP form um, So Paul Fatima, thank you so much for coming and joining us on the show today
2: Thanks for having us Gemma
0: Yeah, thanks Sheva huge thanks to both my guests today the iop's outgoing chief executive paul hardacre and director of green new deal uk fatima ibrahim we'll be back in a few weeks with the rest of the series when we'll be looking at the solutions physics can offer for future proofing the elements of our world so make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts looking glass is a chalk and blade production for the institute of physics the producer is rosie stouffer and the executive producer is ruth barnes At the IOP, the executive producer is Louise Swan and it was commissioned by Rachel Youngman. It's mixed by Matt Nielsen. The Institute of Physics is campaigning for more young people from more diverse backgrounds to study physics. For more information, please visit iop.org forward slash limitless.